Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The U.S. has a maternal mortality problem. The number of fatalities of pregnant mothers is climbing, and Native Americans experience the highest increase compared to other ethnic groups in a recent report published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Today we'll look at why the numbers for pregnant Native women are going against the worldwide trend toward better outcomes when carrying and delivering Native babies. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Navajo Nation President Boonigren is advocating for the reauthorization of the special diabetes program for Indians and for increased funding. He recently testified before the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee in Washington, D.C. The Navajo Nation has the largest reservation in the U.S. located in the Four Corners region and is one of the largest tribes with more than 400,000 Navajo citizens. Nigren says his community has a burdensome legacy of health disparities, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, which he says are linked to colonization, forced assimilation, and displacement. Historically, our communities thrived on farming, herding, and hunting and gathering. These traditional practices provided us with nutritious foods that sustain us for, for generations. However, this way of life has been systematically eroded over time as processed foods high in fat, sugar, and salt have replaced all our traditional food sources. This compounded by poverty, unemployment, and the lack of transportation has amplified the health disparities we face today. Nigren says the special diabetes program established more than 25 years ago has helped the Navajo Nation, but diabetes remains a public health problem. The special diabetes program for Indians is the gold standard when it comes to diabetes treatment and broadly considered one of the most effective public health programs ever created. We urge you to consider human faces behind the statistics, our elders, our children, and our family. They all look to you and hope that their government will continue to support them in their fight against this devastating disease. Nigren says he supports efforts to reauthorize the program for two years at $170 million per year. The committee also heard from witnesses who testified about the economic cost of the disease in the U.S., the role of health and nutrition programs in prevention and treatment, and the role of pharmaceutical interventions. The Oneida Indian Nation in New York and the Rochester Museum and Science Center held a ceremony Wednesday to repatriate remains from the museum to the Oneida Nation. During the ceremony, the museum apologized for the acquisition of the remains and cultural artifacts. Oneida Nation Representative Ray Halbritter says the repatriation is more than a return. He says it's an acknowledgement of them as real people who lived and deserved dignity in life and death. He says it's also a chance to recognize failures and for institutions to take accountability and make amends. The museum's president, Hillary Olson, says it was a significant occasion as museums recognize the trauma they've caused, including excavation, collection, study, and display of Native Americans and their belongings. Olson says museums can acknowledge the unjust legacy of the past and take steps toward repairing harms. 19 remains were returned from various times in history between 200 and 3,000 years ago. The museum says they were excavated 
cultivated, donated, or purchased decades ago and had remained there ever since. In 2000, 25 remains from the museum were returned to the Oneida Nation. The Fond du Lac Denisulin Nation in northern Saskatchewan has moved 300 members out of the community due to wildfire smoke, the Canadian press reports. Those evacuated are people with compromised health issues. Indigenous Services Canada, the Canadian Red Cross, and Prince Albert Grand Council are offering support. Clean air shelters and air purifiers are being made available to residents still in the community. A wildfire is burning near the community and is listed as not contained. Officials say once conditions are safe, they'll start the process to bring those evacuated back home. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, supporting native-led initiatives, protecting plateau lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Grant proposals accepted through September 2nd at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The increase in the mortality rate for Native Americans during pregnancy, childbirth, and months after outpaced every other ethnic group in a study just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The study, which does not include the time since the start of the COVID pandemic, finds Native maternal mortality is especially high in the upper Midwest and across the Great Plains. The study's authors say long-time health disparities and lack of access to prenatal and perinatal care contribute to the poor outcomes. The study's findings are in keeping with previous research, including a recent one by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But researchers say the documented rate of increase for Native mothers is cause for concern. We'll discuss more in this hour with experts of maternal health. Please join us. What health resources are available to Native mothers in your Native community? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. Let us know. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's meet today's guests. Joining us from Southern California is Dr. Tina Patara-Lau. She's the Maternal Child Health Consultant for the Indian Health Service at headquarters. Welcome to Native America Calling, Tina. Thank you, Sean. Happy to be here today. In Grand Forks, North Dakota, we have Dr. Andrew Williams. He's an assistant professor at the School of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of North Dakota. Andrew, welcome to you as well. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to get this conversation started. This is a, a really, really pressing topic. And Tina, I think it would be helpful if you first defined the term maternal mortality. Obviously, it's a fatality that's connected to pregnancy, but what else do we need to understand? 
So maternal mortality in the American Indian Alaska Native community has been elevated throughout the last um, several decades, about two to three, three times higher than the general population. Um, and we really want to address that these high rates are unacceptable. Um, recent studies have reviewed the causes of maternal mortality with specific attention to American Indian Alaska Native representation. And then we know that this is challenging with a small number and that um, for the confidentiality of tribes, um, tribal sovereignties, um, use of uh, single versus multi-race identifiers. But we're really looking at maternal mortality as you know, maternal death that occurs um, up to a year uh, postpartum. So all the way out to a year. So that's a pretty wide time frame. And uh, Tina, I read that 80% of these fatalities, they are preventable. Other developed countries in the world don't have some of these same disparities with regard to maternal mortality. Um, and this, obviously, we're talking about this from a Native American context today, but these rates are troublesome across all demographics. What's going on in here in the U.S.? Why do we have this problem? Absolutely. I will echo the statistic you mentioned um, in this CDC report from last year reviewing um, the findings from maternal mortality review committees in 36 states. 80% of maternal deaths are preventable. Looking specifically at American Indian Alaska Native communities, that number is as high as 93%. And the leading causes of death are mental health conditions, um, including death by suicide, um, overdose, and the second leading cause being hemorrhage. And these are also similar findings um, in their study specifically looking at Native groups. Um, and again, looking at uh, American Indian Alaska Native members, about 64 of these deaths occur in that critical postpartum period that I did mention. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Sean, that the United States um, certainly has a long way to go to address some of these uh, gaps and in inequities in care. And I think some of the factors that play into specifically American Indian Alaska Native health are the effects of historical trauma, um, including systemic racism that can last generations, um, together with adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and social determinants of health such as housing and transportation. Um, these factors all disproportionately affect American Indian and Alaska Native birthing persons, um, can lead to higher rates of comorbidities during pregnancy, including those mental health conditions and substance abuse, um, mm -hmm. or substance use, I'm sorry. So definitely something to be more mindful of as we move forward um, in this space. Thank you, Tina. Andrew, we just heard that these mental health issues, uh, suicide and, and other factors are, are huge, huge issues here with regard to what we're talking about. But uh, what are some other factors that uh, that you've seen or you can address that could possibly be the reason that Native mothers are more vulnerable to this whole idea, this issue of maternal mortality? So I think one of the big issues that we really need to be thinking about um, especially in, given I'm in that region where the data is showing we have some of the highest increases lately, um, we're also in one of the regions where we have really poor access to prenatal care for American Indian women. Um, here in North Dakota, we know that it's about two times higher rate of uh, American Indian women in terms of starting prenatal care early or not even getting any prenatal care at all. And when you're thinking about the purpose of prenatal care is not just to make sure that pregnancy itself is healthy, but there's a lot of conditions that can happen during pregnancy that are going to impact the, the mom and the baby after pregnancy as well. 
Um, so I think that's one of the, the big things we can um, really start focusing on is, is what are the ways that we can get people into care earlier? Um, because we know that if they're getting that proper care, they know uh, the pregnancy itself is going to be healthier, but then afterwards, uh, that postpartum period will more likely be healthier as well. And hopefully we'll see some of that, those kind of effects after pregnancies. If, if they're going in for their prenatal care, hopefully they're also going to be going in for that postpartum care as well. And so we can screen for different uh, conditions, both mental health, physical health, et cetera, um, to, to really help start combating some of those, those big issues. So as, as we've seen with the data, as um, was just mentioned, things like mental health conditions, especially among American Indian Alaska Native people, one of the highest rates and one of the biggest contributors to maternal mortality in the in the United States right now. And so if we do a better job treating it and connecting people with care, hopefully we can start bringing some of those rates down. Andrew, at what stage of pregnancy or post-pregnancy are Native women most at risk? Is it that time when they're actually in the delivery room? Is it afterwards? Where's that moment? Um, I think... I think that could be really hard to answer just because, you know, when you're thinking about maternal mortality, we look at the rates and the rates are high, but we have fairly low numbers necessarily when you get down to the actual numbers and the counts of people. Um, but if you look at some of the data recently from the CDC, we're talking about things like mental health conditions, and we don't have timing necessarily connected to that, but in their definition of mental health conditions, it's things like suicide, overdose substance use disorders, those types of things. So that can kind of happen across that whole period of time, whether it's perinatal or postpartum. Um, and then the second highest rate is hemorrhage. And when we think about hemorrhage related to maternal mortality, that's during that birthing period, all the way up to about 12 weeks afterwards is how people would typically define that. Um, and so it's really some of those early periods of you know, in labor and delivery, and then those first few weeks, first few months right after delivery that you really need to be most concerned about in terms of those, those conditions. Now, I did read that that actual, the, the labor and delivery, that time there in the, in the hospital when the baby's being delivered, there's a lot of emphasis on really making sure that the mother is safe and she's secure. And uh, we've, we've done well. A lot of hospitals have done well in that regard. But it is, it's that post-period that uh, there's not quite as much emphasis. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think for, um, you know, your standard postpartum care, most women don't go back in until about six weeks afterwards. Um, and then my wife and I just had a second child, so as we were leaving the hospital, they're like, <laughs> if you notice anything before your um, postpartum check, let us know type of thing. Um, and they specifically put that big push on hemorrhage. And, and in the United States, we've done a lot of focus on on um, maternal hemorrhage in the last few years in terms of reducing the death rate related to hemorrhage. Um, but if you're in a state in which you may be driving two hours to a birthing facility or driving two hours to, to see your general physician and you start hemorrhaging postpartum, what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And I think and that's one of the big things that we need to start figuring out with, with um, especially a lot of our reservation communities and tribal communities. Well, Andrew, first off, congratulations to you and your Thank wife you. <laughs> and, and your second child. But I, I've also, and this is something that I've just noticed in, in anecdotally with my own friends and family, it, it seems like after a, a baby is delivered, 
they're pretty quick to get the family out of the hospital. Seems like back years before, they would keep the mother there a little bit longer, and now they just they're, they get them out pretty quickly. Am I wrong? And if so, and if not, is is that an issue? Just not spending as much time there in the hospital after the delivery. Yeah, I mean, I think that could definitely be part of it. I'm not as familiar with, with uh, exactly some of the data on, on the the length of stay for for people in recent years. It's just not part of of really what I'm familiar with. But um, yeah, I think that would just generally relate to just that additional contact with with care providers in that early postpartum period. Because um, again, if you don't catch something, you can't treat it. And so potentially if there were, be able to expand some of those postpartum stays in the hospital, some of those issues might be able to be addressed or at least caught, treated, maybe more education and those types of things. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of falls in line with, with the medicalization, the further medicalization and, and focus on some of those you know, profit-driven things, insurance-driven aspects of our medical care right now that, uh, you know, if you don't need to be in the hospital, why should you be in the hospital type of thing? And and let's get people out. We see that with a lot more, you know, outpatient services in general. But, um, yeah, those shorter hospital stays for postpartum mom is definitely happening. Um, and, yeah, I, I just think it's one of those things that uh, the more that you would have contact with care providers would be helpful. Maternal health, that is the focus of our show today here on Native America Calling and our two guests, Dr. Tina Pataralao and Dr. Andrew Williams. They have insights, they have information, they have resources, so give them a call. And if you have any questions regarding this issue today, maternal mortality, we have guests who can assist. 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be right back. Are you thinking of making a big splash to end the summer? Water parks are among the family fun destinations that some tribes are sinking big money into. We'll learn about what goes into planning and operating big and small family amusement and theme parks on the next Native America Calling. Services. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on Native maternal mortality today. A new study shows an alarming increase in maternal mortality rates across the board, and Native Americans have seen the sharpest increase. The study shows mental health issues and hemorrhaging are two of the main causes. How do you support mothers before and after delivery? What resources are available there in your community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Also, a reminder to please engage with us on social media, too. And with that, I, I want to share 
a comment that one of our, our dedicated followers just posted on Facebook regarding the show we did yesterday about going back to school. This is Patty on Facebook. She said, what a wonderful counterpoint conversation about supporting children's schools and acknowledging the value and connection of a school to a community compared to the dominant culture's constant attacks on schools. Patty, that is precisely the type of sharp, keen insight that really contributes to this dialogue here at Native America Calling. Thank you, Patty. I, I sure hope you're listening. I'm pretty sure you are. Uh, really appreciate you engaging with us. We are reading your comments. We're paying attention. And also, Robert, who comments a lot on Facebook, too, we're watching you too, Robert, so please keep engaging with us. Wonderful, wonderful followers of Native America Calling on Facebook. Let's get back into our conversation now, and I want to go back to Dr. Tina Patera-Lau. And Tina, learning about these factors here, the mental health issues, the hemorrhaging, I also want to ask you, is age, the age of, of, of a mother also perhaps one of the influencing factors here with regard to these mortality rates? Thanks, John, um, and congratulations uh, to uh, Dr. Williams as well on your newborn. Um, I, I do want to address that last question, part of your question, which is, yes, uh, we are noticing that mothers, uh, pregnant persons are choosing to birth at a later age, uh, which can lend itself to a more, more risk for complications during pregnancy. And, you know, we are mindful that um, with that comes, as Dr. Williams alluded to, more attention to be paid during that critical um, you know, not just postpartum period, but also the uh, period before pregnancy, you know, advising uh, patients that if they are seeking a pregnancy to connect with their healthcare provider and ensure, you know, screenings are up to date, pap smears, uh, sexually transmitted infections, which we know congenital syphilis is on the rise, um, addressing uh, comorbid conditions such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension before pregnancy to really optimize outcomes um, during the pregnancy itself. Um, in addition, that segue into the postpartum period is uh, becoming more evident uh, that we really need to be seeing patients back. And, uh, you know, my, I actually still practice obstetrics, but, you know, telling our patients that, you know, we really should be touching base, um, you know, not just with your care support team, but with your provider within two weeks after delivery to check how you're doing, you know, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, um, being aware of severe uh, maternal warning signs. Um, the CDC um, has a great a resource for um, the Hear Her campaign for American Indian Alaska Native people to provide resources education specifically for tribal communities, including uh, lived experience and stories shared by the community. Um, those maternal warning signs, like I mentioned, if you're experiencing you know, severe bleeding, soaking a large pad an hour, um, severe headaches or vision changes, chest pain, shortness of breath, those are all reasons to seek care immediately. Um, but then also touching base with your care provider within that two-week um, postpartum uh, frame um, to evaluate how you're doing physically and emotionally. Um, it's normal to feel a, a range of emotions, including stress and fatigue. And, and what we tell our patients as well, it's not normal if you feel depressed or anxious most of the time, start losing interest in things you used to enjoy, feel like hurting yourself or others. So really, um, you know your body best. Um, pay attention to any of these uh, signs and symptoms, you know, before, during, after pregnancy, and find that uh, trusted uh, family member or advocate to bring with you and um, uh, talk to someone, tell someone, and seek help. 
Thank you, Tina. Uh, that's good information. I think uh, a lot of our listeners can really take that to heart and, and apply that uh, in their own lives. We've got a caller on the line right now. Her name is Sasha, and she is listening actually online up in Wisconsin. Sasha, hello. What's your question or comment? Thanks so much. Yeah, um, I am also uh, pregnant right now, so and a descendant of the Santisu Nation, so really passionate about the topic. And my question is, what role does kind of federal funding for IHS play in terms of maternal health outcomes? A statistic that I come across in my work in healthcare a lot is that despite increases in the 2023 budget, per capita spending for IHS continues to be significantly less than other, any other population, including that of federal prisoners. And so what steps can be taken to ensure that, you know, Indian Health Services receives the federal funding they actually need to best meet the needs of our Indigenous, you know, women, children, and community members? Sasha, love that question. And hey, congratulations uh, on your pregnancy. Very exciting to have you call in today. And Tina, I'm going to go ahead and let you respond to our caller, Sasha, with regard to these funding issues, perhaps, with the Indian Health Service. Can you comment? Yes, um, and thank you and congratulations uh, to you, Sasha, and, and do appreciate your question. Um, IHS is acutely familiar with the challenges when it comes to um, providing care in rural settings. Um, we know that there's an increase in closure of rural obstetric hospitals. American Hospital Association estimates 89 units have closed um, between 2015 and 2019. Many families reside in rural communities, 12% deliver in maternity care deserts. And so we've really leaned towards um, adapting innovative delivery care models to increase access to care and decrease gaps in health equity. Um, there's a lot of support right now for maternal health, um, including the role I play as the maternal child health consultant. And so over the past year, we've developed a couple initiatives um, to really respond to not only the rise in maternal mortality and in American and Alaska Native communities, but also utilize um, you know, the best practices and resources where we have them. Um, the first of those is um, developing an obstetric readiness in an emergency department, a training manual which provides sites in those maternity care deserts with readiness checklists, protocols, and training for safe triage stabilization and transfer of pregnant patients and newborns. And several areas have put this together and have implemented training um, to, uh, to help improve outcomes as well. And then the second, actually, Sean, to address our prior conversations, um, to increase access to care during pregnancy and postpartum, which we know can be a challenge um, to you know, secure the appointment, make the appointment, and, and, and uh, find transportation and, and, and so forth. So, um, provide, uh, providing a resource called uh, maternity care coordination, which uh, helps uh, utilize telehealth and home visitation support uh, to the maternal infant dyad and increase that screening and education intervention, as well as the use of self-monitoring blood pressure cuffs. And we do this in collaboration um, again, across IHS, uh, we work closely with our Indigenous leaders and Indigenous providers, including midwives and family medicine providers, birth workers, um, to help expand care and access where we can. So mm -hmm. certainly um, more efforts um, in this, much, much needed efforts in this area. And hopefully for Sasha, for yourself and your relatives, you know, we are paying attention. We are moving some things out to the field um, at this point. So thank you. Tina, thank you for those insights. And I'm especially excited what you say about 
telehealth because these issues that we heard earlier with regard to access to to prenatal care and issues like that perhaps with some of these technological tools maybe we can address those issues via telehealth or internet appointments and things like that really promising andrew i want to give you a chance to respond to with regard to how federal funding affects maternal mortality anything to add You know, Tina really covered a lot of what I was going to say, but um, I think one of the things that, you know, IHS is is trying to be as innovative as possible, um, which which is great because we know that there's been that constant lack of funding over time. Um, One of the things that I think more communities can start doing, should start doing, um, is really working with their healthcare providers and really saying, hey, these are the things that we need as the patients in your community. This is what I want my uh, you know, pregnancy care to look like. This is what I want my birth experience to look like. Um, there's a lot of good examples from around the country that have been popping up the last few years of just allowing um, community members to come in. You know, maybe they're going to bring in more extended family members than a hospital is typically um, used to having. Um, maybe they're going to want to burn sage in a delivery room or a postpartum room, and that's typically maybe not something that hospital um, has always done. So I think working with hospitals and having them make sometimes just very easy policy changes in terms of what it looks like for a indigenous person to come in and uh, give birth and be there for a few days postpartum and have you know their family members there, um, those things are really important too. So I think some of that advocacy for um, what care should look like and what that postpartum experience should look like is, is really important um, as well. And then I think, you know, continuing some advocacy at the federal level, as difficult as that is often about that funding, because, you know, like any healthcare system, whether it's IHS or a private system, or maybe someone that's contracting with IHS, they can only go so far as, as what the dollars are going to let them do. Um, and so I think in the future, the, the more that we can advocate and show like, this is needed, we need the funding is, is hopefully going to go a long way. Thanks, Andrew. Let's bring in a third guest into our conversation today, Nicole Gonzalez. She's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and she's the founder and a health policy director and board member for the Changing Woman Initiative. She's also a certified nurse midwife, and she is Navajo. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Hi. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it really is. I'm so glad you're able to join today's conversation. Well, tell us a little bit more about your role as a midwife and some of these other responsibilities that you have. What's your approach to maternal health? Well, there's I find there's many approaches to addressing maternal health, especially in Native American communities. That's part of the reason I founded Changing Women Initiative, because I was seeing uh, there was a lot of gaps in access to prenatal care. Um, and also just lack of respect in childbirth for Native women um, through the years is something I've witnessed. Um, and now I've shifted actually from attending births in a hospital setting into more attending births in a community setting in people's homes and supporting Native women in reclaiming traditional birthing practices for themselves. And so what I've seen in this process of reclamation is a lot of healing and trust being built, um, as well as like a lot of awareness of what kind of things contribute to maternal mortality in our communities uh, while trying to raise awareness around the complications and the complex healthcare system that Native people have to engage on a daily. And I think a lot of misunderstanding um, people, healthcare providers outside of our systems and outside of our communities 
um, are unaware of how complex it is just to access care as a Native person, depending on whether you're tribally enrolled or not, whether you live in a rural community or whether you access care in an urban setting and you're not in your community. Like these all affect where you access care and what services are available to you. And so the whole premise of Changing One Initiative was to re to get barriers out of the way so people could access culturally centered care um, in a way that maybe was more equitable and safe in regards to environment, integrated culture, um, and also touched on different pieces of issues that I see in maternal health, so access to healthy food, access to traditional medicine, access to a doula, um, access to a lactation consultant, um, and then of course midwifery care we know uh, statistically has really good birth outcomes. Women report better experiences, um, building trust with their providers when they access care through a midwife. Um, and New Mexico is unique because we attend 33% of all births in our state, which is different than other states. Mm -hmm. Culturally centered care. Nicole, you, you mentioned earlier a lack of respect for Native women in childbirth. Could you give us some examples of that? What do you mean by that? Well, I would say um, often what I see when I have women transfer from a hospital setting or getting care started in a hospital setting or an IHS setting is they might have um, some education around diabetes if that's what they have, but they're unclear how to use their their glucometer or even if they have it. Um, so there's an education piece that's missing. Um, informed consent about providing care. I feel like the research I've done is there's still a high number of unconsented procedures done to Native women within the IHS hospital and within hospitals in general. And so I understand in a hospital setting, some of these things that we do as providers is assumed they're going to get an IV. It's assumed we're going to do these things. Um, but Native women are not always educated about what they can say no to. And so they're also not always thoroughly educated about options. And so then it's an unconsented procedure. And so things happen to them without their full consent and awareness of what's happening. Um, and so that happens. That's what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. As well as stories still of mistreatment um, by nurses and um, sometimes providers around their pregnancy. Um, if they're even have type of, they're not feeling safe about even explaining if they're homeless or they have issues about who they're living with. So the concern about getting their baby taken away um, leads them sometimes to not be full disclosing about their situation at home. Um, so there's this mis mistrust in that way. Um, and also like understanding the role of trauma and how that plays a role in the families and the communities that we serve. Um, and I'm talking about trauma like sexual abuse, physical abuse. Of course, there's historical trauma. We know about the colonization of our land. Unfortunately, IHS is part of that trauma history, and so it can trigger things in women who access care there, automatic mistrust, white coat syndrome. If there's underlying anxiety or PTSD, that tends to come clear um, when they access care. And so what happens with people who are traumatized is they don't always know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know the questions to ask. Um, sometimes they don't come to care, um, and they feel unsafe just talking about birth and pregnancy of because they're afraid they're going to get their baby taken away or something bad's going to happen to them. Nicole, thank you for that clarification. And we have just enough time to make uh, take another call. We have Jean who's listening in Hoopa, California on station KIDE. Jean, you've got about a minute and a half. Go for it. Hey, Nicole, good morning, everyone. Uh, 
please talk about prenatal vitamins for women that have trouble accessing care. And does iron help in the prevention of hemorrhage? Okay, thanks. Those are my questions. Thank you, Jean. Really appreciate that. Calling from Hoopa, California. Uh, I'm going to go ahead. We're going to have to take a break, but uh, Nicole, I'm going to go ahead and let you, you'll be able to respond to that question from our caller regarding prenatal vitamins and, and maternal health when we come back from this next break. And then we've got another caller on the line as well up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. We're going to get his comments as well. So we've got a lot of activity here on the show today. A lot of people calling in, great dialogue, great conversation, as well as all you keyboard warriors out there who are commenting on Facebook and our Instagram. So let's just keep this this moving. Let's keep the energy going. Anybody else who wants to call in today, share your comments, share your insights. 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848. Or just go on Facebook, go on Instagram, go to NativeAmericaCalling.com. We're paying attention. We're watching you. We're reading what your comments are, and we appreciate all this great dialogue. What we have here is a community, right? Native America Calling. It's a community, and it only works if we all participate. So another short break, and we'll be back. we got a whole lot more to talk about. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led foundation supporting Native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the Plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. You're tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about maternal health today, and there's still time to join this conversation. What health resources do pregnant people and new mothers have available in your Native community? Tell us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we just had a caller before break, Jean in Hoopa, California, who had a question regarding the use of prenatal vitamins as a uh, a way to prevent hemorrhaging and uh, our guest nicole gonzalez who is a midwife and maternal health advocate she's on the line right now in albuquerque nicole can you respond to that question regarding prenatal vitamins yeah i think um the complication that a lot of women can experience following childbirth is postpartum hemorrhage Unfortunately, I think it's poor logic to assume that prenatal vitamins stop postpartum hemorrhage. I think when it comes to vitamin deficiency and iron deficiency anemia and pregnancy, those are common things that can show up because of blood volume changes to support blood loss at the end when baby is being born. And so definitely prenatal vitamins support the wellness of women, but honestly, the best way to get access to those nutrients is through your diet. And I get food access to healthy foods is kind of a challenge for a lot of Native people, um, but that's why the nutritional piece is super important, as well as eating traditional foods that we were as, as ancestors before us ate um, to support our wellness. And so I think it's good for people to take prenatals, but I don't think it should be taken in lieu of trying to eat healthier food that would support a pregnancy. 
Thank you, Nicole. And I do want to remind folks, uh, you know, talk to talk to doctors, talk to actual uh, health professionals here, as opposed to just responding to advice on the show. This is an educational forum, and it's very valuable. But again, we don't want to take the place of licensed health care providers uh, here on the show. So with that, I do want to also allow Tina to respond as an obstetrician gynecologist. Tina, anything to add with regard to prenatal vitamins for our caller? Um, hi, Sean. Thanks. And uh, the some of the value from prenatal vitamins um, can be found in, in the, the folic acid re- requirements during pregnancy, again, uh, reducing risks for uh, spinal cord defects. And that, so that's one of the benefits that can be achieved, as well as um, also in agreement with Nicole, supplementing uh, that iron that you can get from um, traditional foods and sources. Um, and I, I, we look primarily to um, folks who develop severe anemia in pregnancy, where the risk during postpartum hemorrhage might be higher. And I, again, echo your sentiments that all of your decisions during pregnancy and about your medical care should be done in discussion with your trusted health care provider. But we do have literature that tells us that severe anemia may be associated with some postpartum hemorrhage risk and the overall, again, benefit of uh, taking prenatal vitamins uh, for the folic acid primarily as well. Thanks, Tina. Let's go back to the phones. We have Chanupa listening up there in Pine Ridge on Keeley over there on Porcupine Butte. And hello, Chanupa. Are you going to sing us another song today? Yes, I would love to do that. Sean, listen, uh, for the lady that I think her name is Nicole. Nicole, I want to share a brief understanding with you. My daughter was born on April 29th or April uh, 20th back in 1991. Okay, her name is Fiona Ray Martin. And during my uh, wife, uh, my late wife, Vonda Bianis' pregnancy, we noticed that in her development of my child, she wasn't fully developed because of the lack of uh, medication and lack of prenatal vitamins and all this, what the other callers spoke of. This is one thing that is very essential to our people. Had I not stepped in and helped my late wife, you know, my daughter would have came out she probably would have passed away or she would have been born deformed. But at the same time, I use traditional remedies from our cedar sap. When you boil it into water and it comes down to a, a little milky substance, that's what way I fed my wife so it keep her uh, breast milk nurtured and notified, okay? And so when my baby was born on April 20th, a great birthday, because that's my mom's birthday, it showed to me that the caring and loving of what we men did for our spouses was the honorable thing to keep that dietary back in our traditional remedy. And there is a birth song for these children. It's, this is what they they call that birth song. That is a traditional birth song when our children are being born. And thank you for a great topic today, Sean. I will it back to you. Have a good one. Thank you. Oh, Chanupa, thank you for for that song and for all of your wisdom, for all of your insights. And I want to go ahead. We have another caller on the line, but I do want to give Nicole a chance to respond. Nicole, our caller, Chanupa, he stresses uh, a man's role 
a father's role, a spouse's role with regard to the childbirthing and the pregnancy process. Uh, anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I love that he shared this beautiful song with everyone. Definitely, there's lots of male partner roles or partner roles in childbirth and in pregnancy. Um, I often work with couples and their partners are asking how to support their birthing person in childbirth and pregnancy, um, especially in a traditional sense. And so discussing their role as being in ceremony with their baby is often something we talk about. But also, like, if birth isn't happening in the home or in a hogan or in a traditional space that used to and it's happening in the hospital, you know, men want to know what their role is in that space. And so that's a discussion definitely when you talk about bringing in traditions about how to make that space a ceremonial space. I know someone had talked earlier about being able to burn cedar. But the other thing to think about as somebody, if you're even if a non-native provider in a hospital setting is, you know, making sure when women are birthing their babies, like to encourage the, the staff, the nurses and the doctors to maybe be quiet after the baby's born so that the first thing the baby hears is their native language by their family. And I think that's a beautiful way to integrate language and culture into a space that isn't traditionally in our home or in a ceremonial space, but like to make it that way. Um, and I think a lot of times we want to support birth and ceremony in a, in a space because we know for Native women, birth isn't happening at home, it's happening in a hospital. Um, but I love that he was able to be a partner and support and bring the song forward for his wife, um, his late wife and his child. I think it was a great example of how men can integrate and be part of this experience with their partner. Absolutely. In what you say, uh, the importance of those first spoken words that a newborn hears being in a native language, that's really profound, Nicole, really profound. We have time for another caller, Dr. Anthony Stately, who is listening online in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Buju. I'm Sean. Nice to hear you. And thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, well, please, any insights, any thoughts uh, you can share regarding maternal mortality? Sure. For, well, for one thing, I just want to really quickly say um, uh, Pidamia, um, which uh, Sean, I mean, um, Chinupa for that beautiful song. That was amazing to hear. So thank you so much. Um, and also, Nicole, thank you for your comments about um, the role of uh, midwives um, and also doulas and um, pretty much anybody that um, works in the sort of like the traditional and cultural um, 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 healing and birthing spaces. I think these are really important things to sort of bring to this conversation. I think one of the things that we don't often think about is like how hard it is for indigenous women and native women specifically to find a place in um, more um, Western or sort of like um, um, typical medical um, entities like hospitals and other places, a, a place where they see themselves reflected in the environment and a place where they feel um, they're going to be well taken care of and listened to and appreciated and reflected back to them, their, their cultural life ways and their appreciation for that. Like so many of those spaces um, are just um, traumatizing for them. They've experienced all kinds of um, um, traumatizing situations throughout their lifetimes that are related to medical care. And so 
encouraging in lots of ways, in every way that we can possibly to integrate traditional and cultural healing practices and spiritual practices into that environment and creating a space for that to happen is really critical. And, um, and it's one of the most profound things I think that can actually help us to change these things. Cause I think we don't often talk about like the, like the things that we don't see the invisible structure that's in place that sort of like, um, you know, diminishes and, and devalues, um, these practices, like mm-hmm. the importance of having somebody in the, in the room singing a birthing song while the baby's coming out and while the baby is entering into this world is one of the most, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, spiritual experiences that women can have. They're creating life, right? And so part of it is just making sure that we're trying to create systems that are actually welcoming of, you know, quote-unquote alternative or decolonized ways of sort of having this happen. And that's a really important thing to, to try to be um, pushing at systems level as well, right? Like in hospitals, in healthcare, um, getting these things um, supported through health insurance plans and those kinds of things. Um, those are really important conversations to be having at structural level things as well. Anthony, really appreciate you joining the conversation. Uh, really good insights, really on point, uh, adds a lot of value to our conversation today. And I want to go back to, to Nicole and as we wind down the show and, Nicole, Anthony speaks highly of of midwives and some of these other culturally centered approaches. And I think it would be really helpful as I think so many of us are are used to the, the, you know, that typical pregnancy type of, you know, hospital doctor relationship. And maybe if you could just kind of explain for us, like, what is it, what, how does a pregnancy work when you, as a midwife, like what are, you know, those, those months leading up to the pregnancy and then the actual delivery itself. And then, and then the, uh, the post pregnancy kind of compare and contrast what's different about what you folks are doing with these culturally centered approaches, as opposed to what somebody might deal with in a hospital. Right. I think the biggest difference that I see is I've spent a lot of time with traditional healers and medicine people is when it comes to traditional medicine and healing, there's not a time frame, right? Like it's not like they see you in 30 minutes and you're gone. Um, so that is different. Um, to be able to have ceremony, to be in ceremony, it takes time. It takes like sometimes hours. Um, the other thing is if you were going to see a traditional medicine healer for any type of work on yourself, it's up to you to call that healer and to show up. Whereas if you're going to see your midwife or your doctor, Right. There's an assumed responsibility responsibility placed on the physician or the midwife and the practice to make sure that you come to your appointment. And so the sense of responsibility for navigating care um, is very different in a Western colonial medical system than it is in a traditional system. And so trying to merge the two worlds as a midwife and as many of us who are indigenous midwives are kind of in that place of being a bridge. And so we have one foot in some knowledge about traditional teachings around childbirth and pregnancy, but we also have the skill sets and the knowledge in Western medicine to manage com- more complicated issues like postpartum hemorrhage and, and other things, comorbidities that show up during pregnancy. Um, and so when you talk about the differences is one is having an awareness of the trauma in the community, um, historical trauma in regards to what's happened in the community to make it be what it is, one. Um, Two, having the language and the understanding of culture from where people are coming from and working from that lens to serve them and work with them 
Three is understanding the power structure um, when you go into a hospital or when you're working with a physician. Like obviously they have years of experience, but there's a power imbalance there and understanding that they hold power with knowledge and they can either use that against you or work with you to help have a better health outcome for yourself and your baby. Um, and so in regards to midwifery care being different is there's more time spent with women. There's more visits people can have. So they have more of an intimate relationship with their midwife, depending on the setting. A lot of nurse midwives work in a hospital setting. So sometimes they're in the same situation as physicians and having a 15 or 30 minute window to see people and having to see you know, like 20 people in a day, which doesn't allow for good like relationship building. But in a community birth setting, in a community setting for midwives who choose to do birth in birth centers or home, like you get an hour visit with women, you go into their homes and you visit with them, you see who their family is. In regards to postpartum, you see them up to five visits um, prior to six weeks and you see them, not only the mother, but also the baby. And so they aren't, they're not separate. They don't go to a pediatrician. You are responsible for the wellness of both up to six weeks. Um, and so it's just a very different couplet model. We don't separate mom and baby once they're born. We take care of both up to six weeks, and that is different. Um, in regards to training and skill sets, um, being knowledgeable about um, collaboration and transfers and knowing when to transfer for higher care if something complicated in a pregnancy shows up, that's what we're trained to do is to acknowledge and be aware of when things are not normal anymore. Um, but also coming into the pregnancy with women, from a lens of that pregnancy is normal and healthy process. It's not a disease process we're managing. Yes, we order labs and all of these additional things to support the pregnancy is continuing to be normal. Um, but we don't come from the lens like automatically, like there's something wrong and we need to order labs. And I think that is a different mindset sometimes than the way medicine is taught um, in a Western colonial sense. Um, and so when you work with a midwife, you have better relationship with them. You have more autonomy you have equal decision-making, you have a better relationship with yourself and your body, and you feel more prepared to be in the mothering role when you're done. Nicole, thank you. I, I just can't uh, say enough about those um, those comments you're sharing here on our show. And uh, quickly, I just, I, we've got about a minute. Tina, I, I'm, you know, I know it can be intimidating going to a doctor, but please tell us what you do, Tina, as an OBGYN to put your patients at ease. Oh, thank you, Sean. And Nicole, thank you so much for lifting up the work, uh, not just of midwifery care, but of an Indigenous midwives. Um, I was fortunate to, and I realize now this is not the norm, but in I was fortunate to be trained by midwives during my first year of uh, residency. And I think this is what sets my understanding, uh, you know, set it apart was that, you know, birth is a very low intervention, very natural process. Okay. And as a non-native provider, it's important to be open and curious, practice humility, and um, and establish that trust. So thank you. Thank you, Tina. And thank all of our guests today on the show, as well as the callers who joined the dialogue. Wonderful conversation regarding maternal health. Please, listeners, join us tomorrow for a tour of tribally run amusement parks and how they contribute to local and tribal economies. Until then, thank you for listening to the one, the only, Native America Calling. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it 
carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.